Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Brian Patrick. And I'm Zoe Albion, your other co-host. On this podcast, we talk to scientists about their recent discoveries of species that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to these scientists about how they found these new species and why they matter. We learn how they decided that they were new species and the behind the scenes stories of finding them. So join us as we explore the biodiversity of our planet and the scientists who help us better understand it. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. Welcome to the new species podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Brian Patrick. Today I'm joined by Dr. Derek Hennan. Derek works for the Virginia Department of Agriculture as the Slow the Spread Coordinator, monitoring the spongy moth populations in the state. He's here today to talk to me about his paper in the April 15th issue of Zoakies, in which he and his co-authors describe 17 new species of millipedes from the eastern United States. Welcome, Derek. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm pretty excited to have you on, actually. We've followed each other on Twitter for a little while. And I've been following your exploits with all of these millipedes from the from the point where you were describing them to submission to all the way up to they're published. <laughs> so you got the whole process there. <laughs> I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you and it's and it's an epic project too. The paper itself is over a hundred papers, uh, seventeen new species, and more species than that are actually described in there. But you re-described a number of them, so it's a pretty mm-hmm. epic project. Yeah, and this is actually sort of the culmination of um, the past five years of my PhD, as well as the Merrick Labs work. Um, you know, we started on this big project on the Zistodesmidae, these cherry millipedes, uh, back around 2015. And in the past few years, we've been able to publish on this genus now that we finally amassed enough and got all the genetic information that we needed. And so really just um, exploded the known diversity for the genus. So we're excited to have this stuff out there and be able to talk with people about all these new species. Yeah, and this is part two of the work, right? Because the part one mm-hmm. came out last year, and and you did that with the same two co-authors. Only there was a different first author, and you you're on the second part of this. Mm-hmm. And you guys took it from like twenty or so species, or eighteen or something like that. Now there's seventy eight species. Is that right? Yeah. So back in 2015, there were 23 known species, and so you know that was kind of what we started with, and we amassed all these specimens and kind of noticed there were these two um, groups within the genus, and so. We said Jackson Means, one of my co-authors, he was also a PhD student at the time I was. Um, You know, he took this one group, I took the second group, so his paper came out last year, and then mine came out this year to complement it and finally bring order to the chaos of this genus. So, you know, we've just had a blast uh, exploring this genus and getting to know these millipedes. And and this is, since we haven't mentioned yet, this is the genus Nenaria, what are called the twisted claw millipedes. Why are they called twisted claw millipedes? Yeah, so the males in this genus, um, they have these interesting kind of twisted spatulate claws on the anterior portion of their body. And we assume they use those um, during mating. The females don't have these same twisted claws, but it's such a cool little morphological feature to see that we just had to, you know, use that as the name for the genus. And they didn't so right really... up at the front, like on their front legs near yeah, the... the front of the organism, they have these little flattened yep, claw-like the... things. Yeah, the first about seven pairs of legs or so have those flattened claws. Tell us a little bit more about these things. How how big are these in general? There's there's quite a bit of variation in the paper that you put there. I saw some uh, up to about an inch long or, mm-hmm. or about 23, 24 millimeters, and some of them were even smaller. What, what kind of variation do we have in this genus? Yeah, so it's a relatively tight variation for millipedes. Um, it I think the smallest one we found was around 20 millimeters and the largest one was around 38 millimeters. So, you know, if you take in your mind about an inch long, 
that's the kind of size of the millipedes that we're talking about here. And just to orient the listeners, I know that sometimes people get centipedes and millipedes confused. Uh, millipedes, uh, they have uh, two pairs of legs on each of their uh, body rings, and they're herbivores, they're slow moving, uh, where centipedes have one pair of legs on their body, and they're carnivores. They actually have a, a modified pair of legs at the front of their head um, that are modified into something called forcipules, the venom jaws, and so they use those to catch prey. So... You know, if you come across some mini-legged creature and you're like, oh, is it a millipede or a centipede? If it runs away really fast from you, it's probably a centipede. If it's just kind of hanging around in the dirt and chewing on some leaves, then you've got a millipede there. Yeah, and and we actually get some exceptions to that rule, of course. And mm-hmm. and you're right. The best way to look at it is look at the little the little segments so you can see the little body divisions going down it. Has it got two pair or two legs on each side of for each division, or has it got one pair? If it's only got one leg on each side. For each of those little rings, as you called it, mm-hmm. then it's a millipede, or then it's a centipede. Sorry, centipede. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and these, so yeah, we we talk here a little bit about what they do in general. Um, these, this group that you worked on though, was a little different than the group that your other author worked on. the The first paper, yours were pretty well range restricted, right? So they were in in kind of a very specific type of habitat or or location, I guess I should say, not necessarily habitat. Mm-hmm. Yes. As opposed to the other one. Tell us a little bit about that. The Wilson Eye group versus the minor group. Yeah, so the twisted claw millipedes as a whole, they have a pretty nice distribution in eastern North America. They go from New York west to um, around Illinois, south to Mississippi, and east over to North Carolina. And so the the minor group, um, which has more species, that's the one that's distributed all the way out to Arkansas. Uh, they seem to have more um, adaptability to sort of uh, drier conditions. Uh, whereas the Wilson Eye group, uh, the new species I published on in this paper, they're much more restricted just to sort of moister habitats in the Appalachian Mountains. And so um, really the furthest one west that we found was in Tennessee, Kentucky, kind of that area. And so they're really um, tightly packed to these mountains, which was kind of interesting to see. Yeah, so they're they're really restricted pretty much to the Appalachians, whereas the other ones can get out and like you can find them in a little bit more diverse habitat, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and... How did you find these new species? And I know that there are a variety of techniques that you had to use for this, but what was your probably the most common go-to thing to go look for millipedes besides just turning over rocks, which yeah. is an obvious thing, but what else did you have to do? Yeah, so we use very advanced techniques. We use something called a millipede rake. And so you take a broom handle, you take the broom off the bottom of it and just attach a metal L bracket there and use that to just scrape on the leaves. Or my favorite tool, which is just an $8 garden claw that I bought at a hardware store a couple of years ago, and it served me well. So we just use that move leaves out of the way. And usually these millipedes are right um, underneath at the leaf litter and soil interface. And they actually like to be buried into the soil a little bit. Um, oftentimes with these uh, cherry millipedes, the larger family, um, you can find them just kind of under the leaves themselves. But we ended up finding out that a lot of times these guys like to be buried down into the soil a little bit. So we do a little bit more digging and typically like an inch or so under the soil, we'd be able to find them. And so, um, you know, we were typically hitting kind of forested habitats. And when we started off with the project, we didn't know exactly what habitat they really preferred. So we'd kind of just go wherever and kind of see, you know, I'd note the trees down because, you know, I like plants. So I like to note kind of what the habitat was like. And we started to notice um, after around the second year that the best places we were finding these millipedes were these nice um, moist gullies that had uh, rhododendron trees, hemlocks, and kind of these trees that would um, create a nice moist understory 
Um, and particularly around streams, we had pretty good luck finding these millipedes. And this particular genus was a little more, um, let's say, frustrating to look for than some of these other cherry millipedes. Um, people might be familiar with the genera Aphaloria or Sigmoria. They're these very large, flashy cherry millipedes that have these colors that are black and yellow or red or orange and really um, advertising the, um, some warning coloration because they do have poison in their bodies. And so um, they'd be, you know, a good couple inches long. You could find them all over. Nanaria, you know, they camouflage themselves a little bit more. They're this just beautiful chestnut um, brown color kind of to a shiny jet black. And they, they're just kind of under the soil, like I mentioned earlier. And you kind of have to really go and look for these. You know, we could go to a forest to find a bunch of these larger species. But these twisted claw millipedes, we'd be lucky to get, say, six or so at one site. And, you know, if we find six at one spot, then we're having a really good day. And it's funny you mentioned that you really like plants as well, because that comes across in some of your new species names. Like you have one named after rhododendrons. You have another one named after tulip trees and a couple of other different plants. Like there's a, one of the ferns where you found a So some kind of unique naming conventions just based on the plants that they're found around, which is not something I've typically run across in this podcast. Yeah, well, you know, we were out in all these beautiful forests in the eastern U.S. Uh, in total, we went to 17 states for this project. And so, you know, I kept seeing like tulip trees and rhododendron. And it's like, you know, well, I think uh, the tulip tree scientific name is just one of the most beautiful that's ever been coined. Uh, Liriodendra tulipifera. And it's like, oh, you know, that's such a great, I could just take that genus name, put it as a species name for these Nanaria. And so, you know, I did that with... um rhododendron and with tulip tree. Uh, this wasn't this particular paper, but I want to mention in um, the last paper that we published on the minor group, um, we found out that there's actually a lichen called Picolia nanaria and kind of nanaria itself derives from nanus, meaning small. And so, you know, I saw that lichen and I was like, you know, let's extend an olive branch to the lichenologists. And so we also named a species nanaria picolia. And so whether you put Picolia nanaria or nanaria picolia, we have these two organisms linked together, which I think is kind of cool. I don't know if any lichen biologists have really come across that yet, but, you know, if they do, I hope they kind of smile at that. Speaking of that, since we kind of jumped ahead where we normally do all of this stuff, we're, we're jumped all the way down to the names already. There's a couple of names here that are worth noting. So the first of these is, is Marianne. Uh, why don't you tell us what this one is? Yeah, so... Nanaria Marianne. Yeah, so my wife's name is Marion, and she was often with me um, when we'd be out hiking. And, you know, I don't think there's any time we've taken a walk in nature or kind of just hiked around without me stopping to look for some kind of bug. And so um, <laughs> in appreciation of her patience and understanding, I decided to name a species after her. So that's Nanaria marionae. And it just fit so perfectly for this because this was a species near Stanton, Virginia, where my wife grew up. And we found this entirely new species. It's actually one that we've been searching for for a good three or four years. Um, and so, you know, I found it there and it's like, oh, this is where my wife's from. So I got a name it after her. So, you know, she was just uh, very excited to hear about that. So now that it's millipede season again, we're going to go up there sometime and look and see if we can find it, get her photo with it. Oh, that'd be cool. That'd be very cool. And then there's another one here that I, I can't help but think it has to have a funny story attached to this. Nanaria Antarctica, as in the continent of Antarctica. Yes. What's going on with this name? Yeah, so Matt Bairtone already called me out about that one on Twitter. But uh, so what happened with that one, uh, that's a species from North Carolina. I think we also have some um, specimens of it from Georgia. And 
we found that particular species, uh, I think it was actually on Halloween night. Um, we had been driving and finally got to our campsite and it was all the way up in the mountains and it was just so cold that night and we're still like looking for millipedes and we just did not bring enough uh, warm clothing or blankets with us. And so that was a very cold night, a cold morning following. And so, you know, after just uh, experiencing all that very chilly weather, I was like, okay, I need to like commemorate this somehow. And so in the etymology in the paper for that one, I note that it was because of the cold temperatures we experienced that night. Yeah, but I, I don't think they're going to be quite as cold as Antarctica. But I guess to a, to a kid in the south experiencing that sort of that sort you, of weather it probably ju- feels about the same. Yeah, you just had to be there to really understand. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a there's a name here that caught a little bit of attention. Yeah, yeah, uh, we can. That, that I'll I'll just let you take it from there. There's a name here that that really got some real press for you. Yeah, I was. Kind of taken aback, I was wondering if anyone would really pick up on this, and uh, they did. So um, I They they definitely did. It was a worldwide phenomenon to find out all of a sudden. (laughs) Yeah, it was amazing. And so the species is Ninaria swiftae, which is named after the artist Taylor Swift. And I, myself, being a Swifty and really enjoying her music, um, a couple years ago when we first started the project, I kind of had in the back of my mind, uh, you know, maybe if we find enough species, I can name one after her and kind of, you know, bring some press to the millipedes and maybe help Taylor appreciate millipedes as well, you know, see if she <laughs> likes it. And so we ended up finding a species from um, Tennessee, kind of southeastern Tennessee. We found it in three different spots. And so when it came time to uh, figure out, you know, how many new names we needed, we had 17 names, so it's like, yeah, let's name one after Taylor Swift, and maybe people will kind of find it, will find it kind of funny and be interested. And uh, yeah, it spread very far. Um, we even got picked up in Rolling Stone, so I think that it might be the only millipede ever to be featured in Rolling Stone. And you know, <laughs> hopefully, if Taylor has heard about it, she likes it or is you know interested, maybe looks it up. It's a you know, it's a very pretty millipede. Uh, her other fans online, um, it really spread on Twitter. I was seeing a lot of stuff about it and, uh, other fans started, uh, relating it to that, her album Evermore because it has similar coloration to sort of the aesthetic of the album. So it's like, ah, it was the perfect one to choose. Yeah, that's great. And and so you answered a question I was going to ask you. So none of her people ever reached out to you or anything? They've just kind of stonewalled silenced you like, okay, great, it's a millipede. I I haven't heard anything, but you know, that's, you know, I I don't name it just so that someone will contact me about it. But, you know, it would be cool to know if she's even heard about it. And, you know, hopefully she would appreciate it. So if you're listening to this, Miss Swift, an an autograph of some sort would be great. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure he'll get you an autographed copy of of the millipede. (laughs) <laughs> oh, of course. I'll send a copy of the publication. That's right. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I also, I also want to. Uh, I have two more names I want to know. Um, oh, sure. Yeah, one that I really like. It, it's named uh, Ninaria paratoma, and in Greek, this means false step. And so, this was the only species that we collected, but weren't able to get uh, genetics from. We only have it from museum collections, and all of our specimens were from pitfall traps, and so. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, that's pretty false step there. You don't want to slip into that pitfall trap. And, you know, this is probably, I think, less than a dozen specimens we have of this. And hopefully in the future we'll be able to collect it. But that was a name that I really liked. And then another one that has a short little story behind it is Ninaria lithographa. And this is a species that has some very strange divergent morphology from the rest of them. Uh, 
And so we had been searching for this one for a while and hadn't been able to find it until we went to Chimney Rock State Park in North Carolina. And we get there kind of later in the evening. We spend a couple hours collecting and we still haven't found it, but the park was supposed to close to people. I think you might be able to camp there, but we we're heading elsewhere to camp. And so it closed at sunset and it's like, oh, but you know, this is kind of far away for us. We really wanted to find it. So I kept writing down the field notes for, you know, GPS coordinates, all that good stuff about where we were collecting. And then um, my colleague, Jackson Means, he kept collecting. I was like, okay, Jackson, you keep searching, see if you can find it. I'll write it down. That'll buy us like maybe 10 more minutes. And right at the end there, we finally found it. And so, you know, I hear him just shouting like, yes, yes, we got it. And so as I was writing the notes down, and so lithographa means stone writer. And so I think, you know, that kind of puts a little bit of just our collecting experience into the name itself, which, you know, hopefully people will appreciate. There's just, I've seen in a lot of millipede names, um, after all the papers that I've read, you see some species epithets pop up a lot, like minor, serratus, things like that, or geographical sure. names. But, you know, this this is kind of a fun, unique one we can add to the uh, genre. And I'm trying to picture, you know, because most people probably can't picture this, when you pull up a one-inch millipede and you start jumping up and down on the field like you just got the touchdown at the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> you know, the 1,000 Super Bowls we just won by finding this one little millipede. And, you know, there might be people on the trails that just hear us hooping and hollering, and they're like, what is wrong with those people? And they come over like, what What would you find? Oh, it's a bug. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, when... You're like, well, it, technically it's not a bug. Yeah, we we, all, we get a certain type of person, you know, they'll come up and ask us, hey, what are you looking for? Or they'll be like, you're looking for ginseng or morels? And, you know, they want to keep their spot secret. They don't want people coming in. So once sure. we tell them that, oh, no, we're just looking for bugs, they're like, oh, okay. And they become usually much more friendly. And then they'll share a bug story with us. We'll, you know, tell them about the bug or whatever. Um, but if there are children around, they kind of run up. They're like, what are you doing? And they'll ask us all these questions. And then their parents are just kind of standing off like, okay, Billy, let's go. And, you know, there's some that just kind of stare at us because, you know, we're just holding these random like garden claws or big old rakes. And they're like, let's not mess with those people. They look kind of strange. <laughs> <laughs> Scientists are weird. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, Derek, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. I sincerely appreciate this. It's been a lot of fun talking to you and finding out more about these millipedes. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun to, you know, talk about the stories behind the species. Yeah, it's our pleasure. And thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Once again, Dr. Derek Hennon's paper is in the April 15th issue of Zookies. The title of the paper is A Revision of the Wilsoni Species Group in the Millipede Genus Nanaria, Chamberlain, 1918. See the episode notes for a link to his paper and follow him on Twitter, at Derek Hennon, that's at D-E-R-E-K-H-E-N-N-E-N, or follow his Millipede account on Twitter, at Dear Millipede, that's at D-E-A-R-M-I-L-L-I-P-E-D-E. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Zoe Albion, and I'm here with Ricardo Bassini Silva, a postdoc in the Department of Pathology at the Universidade Estadual Paulista in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He's here today to tell me about his paper in the April 2022 issue of the Journal of the Proceedings of the Entomological Society of Washington, in which he and his co authors reassign a known species of trombiculid mite to their brand new genus, Jumano acaris. Welcome, Ricardo. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hello, Zoe. Hello, everyone. So to start off, you work with mites, these really tiny arachnids that are actually quite diverse. Um, they span two entire superorders. That includes Acariformes and Parasitiformes. 
So can you briefly orient us to mite taxonomy and explain how these groups are arranged and where your new genus of mites falls? So first, thank you very much for the invitation and the brief introduction to the topic. And I'm really excited to be here because it's really nice to talk about mites. And sometimes I don't have the time to talk about them. And I just work and work. But <laughs> so, <laughs> answering your question, and I have been working with these mites, at least tigers. I will work for 10 years now. And my entire academic life was work with these tigers. And so in a weird way, to, we can separate these two superorders um, in with a set of characters. Okay, first we have the parasit forms superorder. We have this um, the ticks belongs to this superorder. The ticks and some other cover and the cave mites. These 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 mites they have some shields in the entire body. And they divide this body with the anal shield, the genital shield, and all other shields in all the body. But we talk about the acariforms, that is the other superorder. We have, we have one is very, very common for the people, the scabies. Scabies, everybody knows what it is, <laughs> and is in the acariform superorder. And with the feather mites, we have mites on the feather of any single bird. We have some feathers and these mites and they are all different in, in all different orders of birds. And we have the velvet mites. Velvet mites is with my family and what the mites works and with this genus falls. So we have the trombidiforms is the order and the family is trombiculid. The common name of this, the mite, is chiggers. I think everybody knows this word in the US and Europe and Asia. Because here in Brazil, nobody knows what is a chigger. See? Good for them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> but if they know what is a chigger, probably they will see, oh my gosh, I don't want this. Because they can bite us. So in the it's eat a lot the skin, but that that is in with the way we can separate this both superorders in this way. And uh, within that order, Trombidiformes, um, and then within the family Trombiculidae. The chiggers, okay. I'm talk about Trombiculidae, and when I talk about Trombiculidae, is the chiggers. The chiggers in the they the larva is parasitic of any vertebrate and terrestrial vertebrate so they can parasite amphibians reptiles birds and mammals we can find them in all these kind of um, hosts but in the post larval stage are uh, the predators of other arthropods so they can predate some eggs mainly insects and all other tiny little arthropods that can be found on the field. So, separated this by the all other families inside the order trombid forms, we have a dorsal shield. This is one, just one shield, the dorsal shield. This is, have one shape that is 
just for this family. And the pulp of these mites, they have some modifications because of the parasitic level, they, the behavior of these mites. So they change the pulp and the, the mouth parts for this. So we can separate these mites from the others about this. So just one thing, all these characters that we are talking about here, we saw only on microscopes. Because sometimes we use some stereo microscope or something like that, but these tiny little characters only when we mount on the slides and see on the microscope. It's a hard job that you have no, <laughs> to look at these really don't, tiny... Don't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes. And um, you started to talk about their, their parasitism. Um, can, you, can you say a little bit more? That's the main thing they do ecologically, right? Is they parasitize other things? Yes, exactly. Because um, inside the group, and we have trombiculid, of course, is one family. We have just another 10 to 15 families, <laughs> uh, sister groups of trombiculid. And these, all these other families, the larva presides some invertebrates. So we can find some on grasshoppers, on some mosquitoes, and, out, and moths, all these kinds of insects. We can find one tiny little red spot. And this red spot is one chombridge form on the order. So we, when we found some tiny little red spot on an amphibian, on a reptile, in a bird, on mammal, we have the chombriculids. So they, they can do a, a lot of lesions, skin lesions on the body. Because when they have a lot of triggers, parasites, some host, they can destroy the skin of the, the, the host. And I saw sometimes, and oh my gosh, it's horrible. It's, it's not a good view. I can say <laughs> to you, it's not a good view. Oh my gosh. Yes. And you can try to squeeze them or took off them, and they are attached to the host. So it's really difficult to get all the, the material that we can study. And the parasites, of course, they can parasite all these um, uh, animals that I talk, I talk about. And this justifies why these mites are all over the world. Of course, we have 3,000 species of this family. Only this family, 3,000 species. So they are a lot of diversity. They have a lot of different kinds of um, characteristics that separate the species, of course, but they have the same behavior. They need to feed on a host, any host that can find, <laughs> maybe the humans, of course, sometimes, and they will destroy the skin to feed on the tissue and sometimes on the blood cells too, the blood cells. Oh, really? I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, sometimes they can be deep enough to pick it up the deep the blood cells. Yes. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry for any squeamish listeners, but I'm I'm so fascinated. Why is this behavior beneficial? Good question. Good, really good question. Because um, I think that 
they need something, uh, I think some nutrients or substance from the host. And from the evolution about the, this big group, some group desenvolved to have the lymph or the blood of the insects, okay? And the, the tigers have the, the able to be uh, good enough to parasite the, the vertebrates hosts and so be feed on them. And I think they need this this food to to dissolve because if if they don't have the food they will die and dry because they need the humidity too mm. because if they don't have the humidity they will dry and oh, forget about they will and and the life cycle of these mites uh, is two years is not for of course for a mite. It's not a long time of <laughs> to live. <laughs> they need to take advantage of everything they have and feed on and dissolve for the post-larval uh, post stages. So these mites were collected in Texas, but you didn't actually collect them, did you? Yes, let them uh, talk about this. These materials are from a collection, collection museum, from the field museum. There are old type, uh, old material that we examine and we saw the material and we saw, oh, we need to work with this and because there are some problems with the original description. So we need to redescribe the material and took a lot of photos and see if this is correct or not. And because of this, we described the new genus. Some time ago, they, uh, Smithsonian and a, lo a lot of other universities make some expeditions in the 50s and the 60s. And all these places, and they collect a lot of ectoparasites. And the researchers in the US work with these ectoparasites. And because of the potential of the, the bite of humans, they receive money to study these mites. So the studies of the tigers increased a lot in the 50s and 40s because of these ex expeditions. And oh my gosh, I bet to go there and was <laughs> in these expeditions to see all these collections. <laughs> yes. And is it difficult? I mean, there must be some pretty unique challenges working with old preserved mites as opposed to newly collected mites. Yes, yes. Sometimes I have some old material better than new ones. Oh, interesting. Because I don't, yes, I don't know why they use some some different material to preserve, to maintain these slides. And we have some good quality of these slides. Of course, it's not 100% because a lot of these slides we lost uh, a lot of characters. That main characters that we need to see, oh, forget about. We can see because it's mm, all <laughs> kinds of problems. Fungi or some destroy the slides. Something happened and we cannot see. But for this, especially this material was a good material. Really good enough to see all the characters. And we be able to make the drawings of this mite. And so, wow, with these drawings, we can compare with another species 
and okay, this is good enough to do the head description. Because these zoological collections that maintain the, the material, the slides, that is like a, a book history, because they maintain the history that sometime ago, I don't know, 50 years ago or more, they, do, they did the collection and now we can work with this. This is really nice. This is really cool. And it's another work that me and my team did. We saw one slide in the Smithsonian collection, the archaeological Smithsonian collection. When I saw this dorsal shield, we saw a Batman mask. And oh my gosh, when I saw this, this I need to make the drawings, I need to describe this material and honor Batman because it's clear it's the Batman mask. <laughs> so we did this last year and we discovered a new genus in honor of Batman. And we have the Batman Acarus of because of this slide. So this kind of this kind of things is really fun. I I like to do this. <laughs> <laughs> And it, it just, this is such a great example of why museum collections are, exactly. are really important and yes. why we need to take very good care of them. <laughs> why did you name this new genus Humano Acaris? So um, the idea is that because I like to honor these tribes and all the original people, the original, um, the original people that live in the places that we collect the material. So... This was found on Texas, and the Jumano tribe live there. We have the opportunity, and we think about, oh, so we need to honor these people. So the, the genus was Jumano Acarus. Jumano is Jumano, Jumano is the tribe name in honor of these people, and Acarus is the mite name in Latin. So we put all together and honor the genus in order in honor of the Jumano tribe with the mite. To return to our broader conversation about how um, reclassifying is also a really important part of taxonomy and systematics, um, why, why does it matter that this, this species is in a, its own genus? Because we need to... Um, let's return to the first thing of the, our podcast. We talk about the parasitism right we talk about that the, these chiggers they bite humans they parasite another hosts and all kinds of this if they bite they bite humans they can parasite all kinds of vertebrates they can carry diseases and we need to know the correct identification to do the correct diagnosis in the end because sometimes we have a complex of species and this genus is like this. The Yushengast genus, we have all kinds of species there, and we need to reclassify a lot of these 60 species. Because we have, uh, we need to know what is, is happening sometime in some kinds of the regions. Because we need to know what we have in Texas, for example, or in another state, if it's the same species or it's another species. And this happened in Brazil. Species is in one state and they carry the diseases. And the other species is very similar. We need to differentiate two species because 
one or, or the other can carry the disease. It's a hard work, but it's really good. At least I like it. <laughs> Absolutely. I hope that everybody gets a little bit more excited about mites and about chiggers and about parasites. I hope to. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Oh my goodness. Ricardo, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Ricardo Bassini Silva's paper, A New Genus for Euchongastia Chysosensis, is in the April issue of the Journal of the Proceedings of the Entomological Society of Washington, Volume 123, Issue 4. See the episode details for a link to the paper, and to learn more about Ricardo and his work, follow him on Instagram, at Ricardo Bassini. If you have questions or feedback about this podcast, please email us at newspeciespodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter, at Podcast Species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash new species podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast.